we have a brand new podcast. Visit myprivacy.help to subscribe. Did you know you can completely control your personal information without relying on a third party? Farris, Gordon, and industry experts explain how you can reclaim control of your data, your privacy, your life. Visit myprivacy.help. You know, I look at the macroeconomic environment and, and Bitcoin, and for me, it's like, this is why Bitcoin exists. This is why uh, Satoshi Nakamoto uh, foresaw some of these issues with the global financial system and that it's unsustainable given the debt levels. You know, Chancellor on the brink of bailouts, second bailouts, it was in the Genesis block, right? And so now we're seeing the similar things, except everything's kind of heightened and uh, the consequences are more dire now because the debt's higher. Um, you got currencies of major developed nations. Uh, acting like emerging market currencies now. And so in a lot of ways, I look around at the world and I'm just like, wow, this is, thank, thank Lord, thank the Lord Bitcoin exists first off, because if it didn't, um, I don't really know what I'd be doing. I think I'd be probably buying gold or something. Welcome to Bitcoin Basics with your hosts, Faris and Gordon. Visit bitcoinbasics.help if you need help buying and securing your Bitcoin. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Basics Podcast. We have got Ferris and Gordon here. And today is the 4th of October when we're recording this. The price of Bitcoin is $19,550. You will get 5,115 Satoshis per dollar. The block height is 756,930. And Gordon, how are you doing this morning? Good, thanks, buddy. It's morning, so that means we've uh, interviewed another guest. Um, but I'm pretty good. We interviewed Sam from Swan Bitcoin, and apart from being a nice, friendly, humble guy, uh, obviously very knowledgeable about macroeconomics, which is why Faris was drooling the entire episode. Actually, I'm not <laughs> sure if you were drooling, but uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, he has a good insight into macroeconomics and what's happening. We talked about everything from C to B, DCs to Bitcoin and uh, Swan and Spectre and all that kind of stuff. So very interesting interview. And, um, yeah, even if you're not economically minded, we keep it fairly uh, based for the layperson like myself. Yeah, and in Sam's defense, it's not just about economics. He actually calls himself a Bitcoin analyst. He doesn't call himself um, – and even though he does study economics and – the way he came there is very fascinating. If you look at his LinkedIn profile, he actually was a physio, physiotherapist for uh, national sports teams in America and then got into Bitcoin. So that, that was an interesting path. But uh, no, this is an easy to follow interview and we do talk about relevant topics happening today. Excellent. So here's our interview with Sam from Swan Bitcoin. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, and share so we can find others like yourself. Oh, yeah. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you on here. And um, we've had quite a few people on, and we always like to talk about their Bitcoin origin story. Yours is unique in that you went from being a sports physio physiotherapist to Bitcoin. And that was something that I'm like, oh, how did that happen? Is the knee bone connected to the blockchain? <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely kind of a unique path. Um, but Bitcoin's for everyone, you know. Everyone needs digital sound money, and I, um, yeah. So I was I was studying business, and and um, in college for my freshman and sophomore years, 
and it was right around the global financial crisis. And I, I was kind of disgusted with what I was seeing there. Um, I kind of already distrusted banks, uh, from lessons from my father. Um, and I didn't like the corruption that I was seeing, uh, around the banking industry and Wall Street at the time. You know, I was walking through, there was Occupy Wall Street, homeless people protesting. And here I was in business class. Um, and then I would ask questions in class that kind of, um, challenge the mainstream Keynesian view of economics. And I wasn't very, uh, satisfied with my answers, let's just say, from, from professors. So I thought it was stupid. And I was like, why am I doing this? Um, and I was always interested in um, anatomy and physiology and physics. And so I switched majors on my sophomore year um, and ended up studying physics and biology and ended up going into sports physical therapy because I, I was interested in how the body moved and more holistic medicine. Um, and I wanted to make myself more useful. <laughs> productive member of society, I guess. Um, and so I did that, went, got to kind of where I wanted to be with that, uh, worked with athletes at all levels. Um, and then once I was finally done studying and I felt like I had some free time, I went back and studied the global financial crisis around like 2015. And I really studied financial history and central banking, kind of got discouraged because I, I saw these flaws and problems with the system, uh, but didn't really see a solution. It was kind of like, well, they kind of captured the regulators. They captured the governments. Uh, Wall Street has so much power. I know it's a problem, but I just don't see how you know we're going to change anything. So I kind of just let it go for a year or two. But then Bitcoin came on my radar. And so I immediately understood the problem uh, that it solved. And, and so I was like, this is it. This is, this is the thing that could actually help shift power away from these large banks and central banks and give power back to the individual. Um, and, and I just had to be a part of it. And so, um, after a couple of years of, of just studying and studying and studying Bitcoin, as you know, is a, it's a pretty deep rabbit hole. I finally felt like I was able to maybe, uh, teach other people about it as well as work professionally in it. So I just did everything I could to make connections and get in the industry. Um, and then Swan get, took a shot on me. And so fast forward a couple of years now and, and this is what I do. So, um, pretty grateful to be a part of this and and why I do it is because I, I really think it's an important tool for individual freedom uh, which we'll probably talk about today so that's kind of my my story in a nutshell wow that's that's awesome and and thanks again for joining us today we really appreciate your time uh, no matter how many guests we have on it's always interesting to hear the origin story and before we get into Swan and a couple of articles you've written so Straight into Bitcoin, a little bit of dabbling with XRP. And uh, did you buy Bitcoin straight away? Um, a lot of people sort of research it for a while and then buy it, or was it buy it and then I'll learn and figure it out later? Um, I I was always attracted to Bitcoin um, from the beginning, just because of, like I said, I'd studied central banks and I liked the idea of decentralization and that nobody could control it. I kind of always knew that Bitcoin was the big deal. Uh, but I did get attracted to some altcoins, uh, for a couple months. It wasn't a long time. Uh, but I felt like I was a genius. I, I forgot which ones I bought. I bought a couple of them before the 2017 run up and I thought I was an investing genius and then saw those kind of disappear <laughs> in the beginning of 2018. But I was always kind of geared towards Bitcoin. Um, and so that 
that kind of shitcoin phase, so to speak, didn't last long for me uh, because it because I kind of just felt like they weren't that important. I, I felt like they were an easy way to trade and make a quick dollar if that's what you want. Uh, but for me, it was about fixing the money, um, actual the actual money. So for me, it only lasted a couple months, and then I was just full on Bitcoin, uh, really from 2018 beginning of 2018 onwards, and, and so that's what I do now. Awesome. Don't worry. Uh, a couple of months is pretty good. I think I was probably in altcoins for about a year. Um, yeah, I feel like people have to go through it, right? Yeah. You know, they gotta you got to touch the stove and burn yourself, you know. That's <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. one of the lessons you got to learn. Yeah, I think so. So what is your role at Swan Bitcoin? Um, I found that quite interesting. Do you want to just elaborate on what it is you do there, please, Sam? Um, I, I, I'm, uh, the only analyst there. So I, I kind of had our research efforts. And, um, so I, I do a lot of the research for all of our shows, uh, podcasts, um, just in the background, I'm kind of always writing things or, or pulling up numbers for people on the team, um, kind of more long-term research projects. Um, and then I do a lot of writing. So I help out with like all of our newsletters, um, kind of use that research to put it into prose. And then um, I focus on education and writing. So I, I write the monthly insight report for our Swan private clients, which is our more high net worth individuals or our entities that kind of sign on. We do a monthly research report for them. I do that with Tomer Strolight every month. I do a bi-weekly market update where I kind of just give it an overview of what's going on in the macro markets as well as the Bitcoin markets. Um, and then I, I kind of help with the Daily Bitcoiner. I help with the monthly newsletter that we send out to over 200,000 people. And so, yeah, they keep me busy. I'm in content, I'm in research, um, and I'm, I'm technically a Bitcoin analyst, which I just kind of gave that title myself because I thought it was cool to be a Bitcoin analyst. They were, <laughs> they said like, Hey, do you want to be a research analyst or a market analyst? I was like, No, let's do, let's do Bitcoin analyst. That's, that's what I do. So yeah, man, I'm, I, it's good. It's, uh, it keeps me busy. Let's just say. Uh, this is something I'm finding fascinating now, um, especially with what's happened in the Bitcoin ecosystem in the last 12 months is um, Bitcoin is now not center stage, but a key part of geopolitics and macroeconomics. Whereas, you know, the 2017 era really was just quite a niche, niche area. Whereas now we're just seeing, you know, presidents, um, IMF, everyone talking about Bitcoin. The fact that, hey, this thing is here to stay. I mean, this is one reason I reached out to you was um, you wrote an article um, citing the crypto adoption index. And yeah, do you just want to give us a highlight of um, what your findings were on that? I, I found it interesting. Yeah, so uh, the global crypto adoption index is, is put out by Chainalysis uh, once a year. And it's something I look forward to because it's probably one of the best measurements of where geographically we're seeing the most cryptocurrency adoption. And it is, it's not just Bitcoin. They do look at other coins and stable coins, but it is mostly, I'd say, stable coin adoption and Bitcoin adoption that is taken into account uh, in this specific report. Um, and so I looked into it and I just thought it was really interesting to see what were the top 20 countries in terms of uh, its cryptocurrency adoption um, as measured by this metric put out by chain analysts. So they do like uh, on-chain metrics. They kind of look at peer-to-peer exchange traded volume um, and all these other kind of on-chain metrics to determine where is the most uh, cryptocurrency adoption happening in the world. And why I think it's interesting is because it shows that 
the most cryptocurrency adoption continues to take place in jurisdictions where inflation is raging, uh, capital controls are the norm, and as well as financial instability uh, due to incompetency at the government or central bank level. Those are the jurisdictions where you see the most cryptocurrency adoption. And it's for me, that's, that's what Bitcoin's all about. It's about helping these people uh, survive who are in much more uh, difficult circumstances than, say, uh, an American like myself uh, living with a relatively stable financial system and stable currency. Um, Bitcoin isn't as needed, let's say, today in, in where I live, but it's very, very needed in other countries such as Turkey, such as Argentina, such as Lebanon, where they're really suffering, uh, the citizens of those countries. And so it makes me feel good because that's where we're seeing the most adoption take place. And so it's kind of finding product market fit in these jurisdictions that are have the most unstable currencies and unstable financial systems. Um, and we can go into more detail, but that's kind of why I, I kind of dug into that report. It's something I look forward to every year. Um, and then I just wanted to share my my initial takeaways from it. Yeah, there is something I actually do want to bring up about that. But just for the benefit of our audience who are not familiar with what it means, can you just explain on-chain analysis and chain metrics, please? Yeah, so the thing about these uh, blockchains, it's cool because uh, it's all transparent. Like you can see into uh, these protocols and see where kind of transactions are taking place. And um, it's kind of opposed to, say, the traditional financial system. Whereas if you want to look at you know economic activity, it's really kind of survey-based. So a lot of these economic metrics and traditional finance are based off uh, surveys that are retroactively kind of, you know, collected and then and then uh, analyzed and then they come out later. And so you kind of get an indirect measurement of economic activity. Cool thing about these uh, blockchain protocols is you can see them in real time uh, where these things are happening. So that's what it means by on-chain. You can actually see uh, on-chain where activities and transactions are happening in place are happening, and then you can kind of make uh, inferences based off those. And so this metric looks into those on-chain things, as well as it looks into peer-to-peer exchange trade volume. So there's certain exchanges throughout the world where you can literally just exchange peer-to-peer without any kind of exchange or brokerage. Uh, You can just go to something like a local Bitcoins and say, hey, I want to trade Bitcoin with this one you know, random guy, and then you'll link up, and then you'll actually change exchange peer to peer. And so this measures on chain metrics, as well as peer to peer exchange traded volume. And it kind of is a combination of both those metrics, how they come up with this uh, adoption. And so that's kind of what unchained means. It's just kind of a fancy way to saying, uh, looking at how these transactions are moving on the blockchain. Yeah, this and, is something. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Gordes. No, that's all right. Uh, Lightning payments are not on chain. Is there any way to um, account for them in your analysis? Yeah, I don't. I don't think they do it um, for this specific one that chain analysis points out. But you can look at lightning metrics as well and see where those are happening. So that's that's another kind of separate. Uh, you'd have to look at that data, but it's not included. I don't think in in this one that we're talking about right now. Uh, but certainly, yeah, you could you could look at that data. Yeah, because obviously a lot of, and we've interviewed a, a few projects in El Salvador, uh, Bitcoin Akasi in South Africa and a few other projects. Um, yeah, using lightning. So obviously that's not going to show up and, and there's no way to track that on chain. But, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see sort of the Bitcoin on chain versus Bitcoin lightning or, uh, other oh, yeah. layers 
adoption. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, it's interesting too because I heard an interview with Obi, um, who is is kind of leading Fetty now, but he said how like also these peer to peer exchanges make up a small percentage of the overall transactions happening in say Africa or these other countries because most of it is truly peer to peer. Like once they meet one person who kind of fills that need for them it's like a relationship where they just say, well, you're my guy now. So it's always going to be on WhatsApp or Telegram or, or Signal. And that's not going to be picked up either. But a lot of these volume actually happens on there. So you got to take these metrics with a grain of salt. But I just like it because it's probably one of the more robust ones we have. But it's always taken with a grain of salt. It's always kind of an, an incomplete picture, but it's something to work off of. And that's, that's kind of why I like it. One thing I really found not surprising, but I enjoyed lo- looking at was with the um, the crypto adoption report that we're talking about. Um, the top twenty countries, United States is included in that; it's in the top ten. Uh, and then, with the exception of Brazil and Russia, every other country in there has actually seen their local currency just plummet against U.S. dollar, and the DXY has just on, been on a massive run. Um, how much do you think? I know this is hard to gauge. How much do you think this is a U.S. dollar play where people are just, okay, I'll get in the Bitcoin to get out of my local currency versus understanding Bitcoin, appreciating the potential store of wealth. Uh, it's, it's hard to tell, right? Because like I said, this includes both Bitcoin and stable coins. And I think that uh, stable coins are actually a big part of it. See, people who have a currency that's being inflated rapidly compared to the dollar uh, see the dollar as a safe haven and understandably so. And so these stable coins are more accessible for them and they can use it uh, to protect themselves against the inflation of their local currency, which is a lot higher than, than the dollars. Um, so stable coins are certainly part of it. Now, I think a percentage of that is certainly people who understand Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a little bit different where you're going to have short-term volatility. And if you're, you're somebody in Turkey who needs to uh, pay monthly bills, you know, it's kind of... Um, it doesn't make much sense to hold all your net worth in Bitcoin because of where we are right now in its adoption cycle and it still has short-term volatility. Now, you also shouldn't have it all in dollars over a long, long period of time because it suffers for the same inflation rates as that local currency. It's just happening at a slower pace. And so long-term, Bitcoin offers protection against that inflation risk, but you have to deal with the short-term volatility. And so there's probably a combination of both going on in terms of these jurisdictions with a lot of inflation uh, compared to the dollar where they're short term going to the dollar, but long term, they should really be thinking about putting their disposable income into Bitcoin, whatever they can after uh, necessities, after you know paying their bills, it should be holding their wealth long term in Bitcoin because it's resistance against the basement, as well as other things like censorship resistance which we could probably touch on uh, in the future. So it's probably a little bit of a combination of both uh, to answer your question. Yeah, and that's something I actually wrote about recently is that even though we're pretty flat with Bitcoin compared to price US dollar, it's rising more significantly against other currencies that are devaluing US dollar. And this includes um, G20 currencies like the New Zealand dollar where I am, the pound, you look at what's happened with the pound in the last couple of weeks. Uh, so we have seen that. Learn how to buy and sell Bitcoins confidently and securely in our next online workshop. Visit bitcoinbasics.help forward slash webinar for more information and to register. Learn about Bitcoin fundamentals, 
how to buy and withdraw Bitcoins, Bitcoin exchanges, Bitcoin wallets, private key management, and cybersecurity best practices. Visit bitcoinbasics.help forward slash webinar, and we hope to see you there. Um, now, one thing you mentioned earlier is that you're in the United States, and one thing I appreciate about American culture is you do have this um, aggressive investing um, culture. Uh, some countries are very conservative with their culture, with their investing. They don't like high risk investments. If they're going to invest in anything, probably just gold. Uh, so with the United States, I, I think how much of that is people, cause it's, it's in the top 10. Where's that drive coming from? Is it coming from inflationary pressures we're seeing in the United States? Is it just coming from these large corporations like MicroStrategy? Uh, hedge funds actually starting to pile in. Is it grassroots? Is it a different adoption in the United States versus these other countries in the world that we're talking about in that crypto adoption index? Uh, yeah, you know, I would say it's kind of a mix where it's probably a blended, a blend of reasons why, you know, somebody in the United States would go towards Bitcoin. I'd say compared to some of these other countries where this is more of a necessity where you don't have to convince these people why Bitcoin's important because they, uh, you know, inherently understand it because they've lived through multiple currency devaluations and they understand that, you know, it's wise to have protection against that and how Bitcoin's scarce and can't be inflated and can't be uh, seized very easily or can't be censored. When people live through that, they can understand it. But the United States, you have to convince people why that's important because they haven't lived through that. So I think there's more uh, speculation on the price going up uh, in terms of Bitcoin's adoption and say some of these developed countries like the United States. And that just makes sense. Um, now, at the same time, I would say that there is uh, a reason to have Bitcoin in terms of an overall portfolio. If you're an American investor is because you do understand those things and you, you understand that Bitcoin has different uh, value proposition than say stocks or bonds and that you're having a portion of your portfolio in there because it does offer, uh, you know, a, a money or an asset that is digitally scarce that can't be inflated away that has a different return profile than say these other assets. So there, there is an understanding of that, but there is probably a little bit more speculation. And the other thing with the United States is, you know, it's a lot, a lot of people understand that, you know, Bitcoin, um, can be thought of as like freedom money and it kind of aligns with the ideals of of what America was founded on in terms of property rights and and freedom and that's and and so there's a lot of that in America as well as people look at bitcoin they're like yeah this this makes sense to us this is what we want we want to own our property and bitcoin allows that ownership to be given back to the individual and so there is this uh kind of underlying theme where bitcoin and a united states ideals are kind of aligned and i think that's part of it as well but compared to other ones where this is used as a necessity and it's a tool there's probably more speculation on its price uh, in america compared to those countries having said a lot though sam um with uh, bitcoin killing babies and boiling oceans are you worried about perhaps I mean, they'll try and ban it. They, we, we know that they can't ban it, but heavily regulation, like for example, okay, you can buy Bitcoin, but it has to be left on exchanges or are, are you worried about those sort of non-freedom in terms of custody, Bitcoin custody? Um, am I worried about it? Not so much. It would be pretty, 
Yeah, I, I, you know, like you can go back to like FDR when he confiscated gold ownership, but this is a little different. Like this would be tens of millions of Americans who hold Bitcoin today, uh, basically confiscating their property, and making it illegal. And so I think the odds of it happening are pretty low. Um, even if they do, what I'm worried about as an American is, is you can only ban yourself from the network, right? And so I'm worried about something like that happening more from a competitiveness with our uh, competing superpowers, let's just say. Um, I don't want us to see us fall behind as a nation and and reject innovation because the reason why we got to where we are today is because we embraced innovation. And so um, that's what I'm worried about in terms of ban. I don't, I'm not really worried about, you know, it affecting the price of Bitcoin or it's stopping it or um, I, I think it would delay things. It would make things a little bit harder. And I would have to think about where I lived personally. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, it's about uh, setting us behind as a country. Um, and and it would be like banning ourselves from the Internet while all the other countries embraced it. You, you know, you, we would we would fall behind. So that's what I would be worried about from it. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think you see... Uh, a push and more of an understanding in Congress and at the political level of what these this technology is, um, and you're actually seeing it kind of go the other way uh, rather than the, the whole banning thing. There is like another side of the aisle that is pushing that, but I see it kind of coming. There's both sides, and and I think that we have the truth on our side. And the more people learn about this, the the more they'll understand that a lot of these arguments pushed by people who think that it's oiling oceans there's not really a lot of data or facts to really support those narratives. So I think the truth kind of eventually wins out. Oh, absolutely not. I say that sort of as a, as a devil's advocate sort of question and um, I'm super positive, but I think they will try and ban it and maybe not in the States, but I guess from my point of view, the worst case scenario would be a sort of an over-regulation of, you know, you can buy Bitcoin. That's fine. Like a PayPal sort of thing. You can buy Bitcoin, but you can't withdraw it from that exchange or that uh, particular financial service. So you've got a lot of Bitcoin left on exchanges and not in hardware wallets. Um, that would be a bad thing. Oh yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. And that's, uh, that's why we always promote self custody. I mean, this is kind of going into mm-hmm. this. This is why we just made that acquisition of Spectre Solutions, uh, trying to make it easier for people to take self custody of their their coins and give them products and tools that they need to use Bitcoin in a sovereign way. Um, that's why I think like even a ban like that, like it, it won't stop people from doing it because the ease of taking self-custody is so easy mm. compared to say gold or, or some of these other assets. Um, and then the digital nature of it, it's so easy to move across borders and how do you even enforce that ban? It would be, it'd be very difficult. So um, but 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 again, without being a dead horse, if you're in the states, for example, and you're buying your Bitcoin from Coinbase, maybe in the future you won't be able to withdraw it from Coinbase. Oh no, yeah, 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 for sure. That's you know, yeah. that's I think we might be down that road. Um, but that's why I think there's a race between Bitcoiners and regulators um, and governments to build the tool. Bitcoiners need to build the tools and infrastructure that allows people to take self custody as easily as possible. Um, this is, this is, it's, it's paramount right now that we just continue to build and build and build and make that UI and UX easier for the average individual. Because mm. in my opinion, taking uh, self custody is still a little bit too, there's too much friction, mm. uh, like my grandma to do it. Um, but I think it's improved dr- dramatically over the last couple of years and I think it will continue to get easier. So 
I think you're right. I think uh, I just think we'll outbuild them and yeah. out or anything. Yeah. Yeah, and one Absolutely. thing I I always have a bit of a smirk, and I don't know if this is just history being serendipitous, but um, you know, the white paper came out in 2008 when the financial crisis was coming through to Genesis Block 2009, and this little thing, governments were so busy at the time bailing each other out, bailing out, you know, what you talked about before the corruption in the financial industry that they they didn't have time on their radar for Bitcoin. And now where we're seeing nation states adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, as a reserve monetary system, there's so much else going on. You know, America's, you're coming up on the midterms. We're fighting inflation. We've got a war. I think, again, this is where if governments unite, okay, we need to do something about this Bitcoin. Um, there's too much going on. I, I think they might just have to put it in on the, um, you know, back of their minds for a little while. So I, I kind of smirk and think this is quite handy that this stuff tends to happen as Bitcoin hits these new levels of, um, of the network effect. Um, I also think they're like, they're laser focused on stable coins. They're worried about stable mm-hmm. coins more than Bitcoin. Um, because it threatens their, they think it threatens their dollar. Yeah. Dollar monopoly more than bitcoin so they still just think bitcoin's this like speculative thing that's going under their radar and so mm-hmm. pretty bullish which is that. great yeah which is it's great. great i love it now um faris has done a very bad job as an interviewer uh next time i'll take over faris um no only kidding um you mentioned swan you mentioned specter um what is swan bitcoin for those who haven't heard of it uh what is specter uh Swan Bitcoin just recently acquired them. Yeah. Uh, so Swan Bitcoin is and, um, an Yeah, maybe just go through what is Swan Bitcoin. Yeah, we're just like an international uh, uh, Bitcoin financial services company or a brokerage company um, that focuses on providing all kinds of products for high net worth individuals. You know, we, we help people buy Bitcoin in their IRAs, trusts. Uh, we just launched a product for financial advisors to get Bitcoin on their balance or for their clients. Um, so we kind of just offer a full suite of services for Bitcoin. We allow people to gift Bitcoin to other people. We do all kinds of different things. Um, and part of the things that we wanted to do better was provide more self-custody solutions. Um, and Spectre is one of the, one of the most uh, respected uh, wallets and multi-sig. Uh, multi-signature is just the ability to hold uh, multiple keys uh, for your Bitcoin. So it's just like added security. For anyone who doesn't understand that, uh, but Spectre was a really good multi-sig wallet, and they're really uh, respected in the industry. And so we wanted to provide more self-custody solutions. These guys were already doing a lot of the work, and so we kind of align with our mission and our values. And so our leadership at Swan and and at Spectre just thought it would make sense uh, as a partnership. And so Swan acquired them, and uh, you know our CTO and our product team and engineering team are now meeting with Spectre and we're, I think they're going to build some great things for Bitcoiners and for all of our clients. So it's exciting. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be really great. Yeah. I, I I'm really impressed with uh, Spectre and we've used it uh, in the past for um, multi-seed custody solutions. And uh, yeah, w- without going into it, uh, people can check out Spectre. I'll put a yeah, link yeah. and yeah, it's, it's really good. And, and, you know, it's got my it's got my vote because it's open source. So uh, that's the number yeah, exactly. one thing. Yeah, and that's one um, thing about Swan. Like, we did want to make it clear, like, it's going to remain open source, and um, we're we're still going to adhere to all of those values of you know 
keeping it open source. Um, it's not going to be like under this corporate umbrella or anything like that. Uh, so that was just an important caveat that I wanted to say because there's some <laughs> chatter about that. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Now, I won't ask you too many questions because I've probably got about 50 questions to do with Spectre, but I won't. Um, Swan Bitcoin is US still US only? Or are you guys branching out internationally? Oh, no, we're international. Yeah, so we uh, we service uh, clients all over the world. Yeah. Awesome. So if someone today is listening to this, you've got a little Bitcoin or you don't, and you want to buy Bitcoin, you know, you don't put, you know, your life savings into buying Bitcoin in one shot, DCA. And Faris and I have talked about this a million times. We'll link. We've actually interviewed Reed. Yeah. Womack, is it? Yeah, yeah Reed Womack. Yeah. yeah. Uh, from and, Swan. Um, so we'll put that episode yeah. in where we go through DCA. And how to no, do that. Thanks for the reminder, Gordon, to, in, to get um, Sam talk about Swan Bitcoin. Cause yeah, it's one of those things. Oh, we've had Swan Bitcoin on our radar for a long time interviewing Reed. Uh, just last night, I interviewed Suli, who was a um, Swan Bitcoin affiliate educator in the Middle East. So it's, it's one of those things where we are very familiar with Swan Bitcoin, but you yeah, have to remind ourselves that some people might be tuning in for the first time. Um, and yeah, this is something we really respect about Swan is it's, Unusual that an exchange will basically say, all right, buy Bitcoin, I'll get off our exchange. You don't, that's not common practice in crypto world. Yeah. Um, it's something we're super passionate about. Like I, I wouldn't be working at Swan if we didn't have that policy in place or that, that mission to get people to use Bitcoin in the proper way, which is the proper way to use Bitcoin is to buy it and then hold the private keys yourself. You don't want to trust anybody else. That's kind of mm. the whole point is to take self-sovereignty of your wealth. Um, so uh, Swan was, you know, we, we have no withdrawal fees like some of these other exchanges. We have thorough education uh, uh, resources available to teach people. Uh, you can jump on the phone easily with a Swan rep to talk you through self-custody. And now we're hoping to build an end-to-end solution with the acquisition of Spectre uh, to make it even easier. And so... It's really important to us. Um, and then we do think that the best way uh, for a majority of people to get access to, or exposure to this asset is through dollar cost averaging. That's another thing that um, I was really passionate about. I think it's the right move for a majority of people. Um, this asset is volatile and people are emotional. And it just can get really stressful when you're overexposed and you can make very emotional decisions that you regret in the future. And so we, we recommend Bitcoin savings plans, you know, buy whatever you feel like is okay, uh, once a week, every week, um, and just let it go, set it and forget it, go outside, relax. You're, you're taking, uh, you're buying Bitcoin, you're taking self custody, and we actually allow you to do it automatically, uh, to automatically withdraw it to your hardware wallet or whatever self custody solution you have. So we try to make it as frictionless as possible and as easy as possible and to use Bitcoin in the proper way. So. That's why I work at Swan. I just, I, I personally think that's the right move for a majority of people. So it, it's I, such yeah. a good, sorry, Faris, it's just such a good way to acquire Bitcoin because I know it sounds simple and okay, yeah, whatever, but you know, completely opposite to leaving money back, you know, say putting some of your salary into the bank, Bitcoin is a forced savings. It's like, yeah, the price might be going down, but you're just putting a little bit in every month, uh, you know, eventually, well, we believe anyway, that's um, the prop, the, value will go up. So it's such a simple thing because in our society, we've been completely um, uh, mystified in terms of savings. Like, why would you save? You know, you're just throwing money away. 
in inflation's rampant. So um, super simple, but I, I don't think people actually grasp the power of Bitcoin as like a savings asset. Just put a little bit of money in every month. I don't think so. It's, it's uh, Bitcoin is saving, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for people to understand that it's a savings technology. That's really what it is. Mm. Um, yeah. And even if it, you know, it's probably not just that, like, I think it's going to be a lot more than that in the future as um, it becomes a protocol with multiple layers of functionality and efficiency and trade-offs. Um, but even if it didn't become that, and it was only a savings technology, a decentralized store of value, it would still be incredibly useful for so many people around the planet. Um, and, and that's why I think it's important. Oh, yeah, we've talked about this a lot, the fact that this is the first time you've had um, a financial service that can be automatically provided to the 2 billion unbanked adults around the world, or more than that, half the world's adult population is unbanked. And you know, there's more mobile phones than people. So it's, yeah, it is incredible. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you actually, because we actually, we recently helped a customer of small Bitcoin. They just need some assistance with um, moving their um, Bitcoins off of Swan and into a cold storage device. And it, it wasn't an immediate process by the time they wanted to re- remove their coins. Um, it took three days. Is yeah. that common practice? Because are you putting the private keys um, somewhere else in custody or, or what's the process there? If you're allowed to talk about that. Yeah. Well, when you initially, like we use prime trust to actually buy the Bitcoin. Um, and so when you initially buy it for the first time, um, it's held in deep cold storage in a institutional custodian custody solution um fire blocks okay so so it's in deep cold storage and when you want to withdraw it it just takes time for them to move it out of there and then put it into a hot wallet where you could actively withdraw it and then a part of that wait time and i know it's, it can be um annoying for the user but it's actually protect against fraud because the worst thing that can happen for our brokerage is is your coins get stolen from you because of some reason right so we find that if you delay it just even a few days um, for a nefarious actor can't pretend like he's you and then withdraw the coins right automatically. Because if somebody gets a hold of your account, that's what they'll do immediately. They'll just immediately try to withdraw it. They won't wait for seven days if they have access to your account. They'll try to do it right away. And so a lot of the lockup times uh, for withdrawals right in the beginning is to protect against fraud. And and that's kind of the most important thing to prevent because, you know, we can't get it back. Like when, when Bitcoin sent, it's gone forever. Like that's, there's no take backs in Bitcoin. Um, and so that's kind of from our higher up, our fraud team, um, as well as our CTO thought that that was the best way to go about that. Yeah. It's a little bit more annoying and, and like a friction for our users, but we honestly just have their best interests in mind. And I think the results sh- are kind of show for themselves because we haven't really had that much fraud at all at Swan. And that's really just because we take these proactive, um, you know, policies to protect our clients. So that's kind of where it comes from. It's, it's both technical from mm. getting it out of deep cold storage and getting into a hot wallet. And then there's also kind of self-imposed Swan uh, wait times just to withdraw just because of the fraud protection. Yeah. And one thing to appreciate is people in the crypto sphere will think three days is a lifetime, whereas that's pretty average for Swift and what most people are accustomed to. Yeah. And it's, it's honestly, it's, it's mostly like the first one. So it's something that we get asked a ton because Bitcoiners really, they get super annoyed by it and they're like, why, you know, you know, you're not letting me withdraw, but really it's, 
it's it's their best interest at heart. And we don't do anything with the Bitcoin. We don't we hypothecate it. It's another difference between Swan and these other exchanges. It's it's held in a trust under your name. You have legal rights to hmm. that, that actual Bitcoin, where it's not just like an IOU on a screen where they're taking it and rehypothecating it. Uh, you know, so we're not doing anything with with the Bitcoin, and we would love to just be able to allow you to take it right away. But you know, it just makes sense from a again from a from a risk or compliance standpoint to uh, uh, yeah, because kinda... that was my follow up question. What's the counterparty risk there when Swan is using a third party for for Prime Trust? Yeah. Well, there's always like the fact that we have Prime Trust on our back end. There is a little bit of a counterparty risk there, um, but that's just kind of the nature of the business mm-hmm. where. You think we have a great relationship with them, and we know that they're using the the top uh, institutional grade custody solutions with Firebox. That's what Fidelity uses. That's what all these big institutional investors. But this is why we, we there is some counterparty risk there, which is why we just say get get your Bitcoin off Swan. This is why we're like, you know, you buy it here. Uh, we don't want you to hold it here long term. We want you to to automatically withdraw it directly to your self custody because technically there is a little bit of counterparty risk. Um, and that's just like the nature of business. Now, do we think that party is very strong? And yeah, we do because we speak with them every day. And and I think they're one of the best businesses in the um, in the business uh, custody solutions in the business. But yeah, get your get your Bitcoin off Swan. That's that's why we recommend it. Absolutely, and I actually would prefer it for someone like Swan or whatever to have a third party custodian because. That's their core competency. Like that's all they do. They just store the Bitcoin safely and securely. It leaves Swan or other businesses to do what you do. But if you're doing both, then it's kind of like, well, you know, are they going to stuff it up? You know, so um, there's, there's trade-offs, yeah. right? That's it's exactly right. They, that's Absolutely. What, and we, if we wanted to build our own custody solution, uh, we better get that right, right? And are we going to build a better solution than somebody whose core business is that who's been at this for many years, like? Probably not. And then it goes back to uh, open yourself off, open yourself up to attacks, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if we lose the Bitcoin and we're holding it on Swan's custody solution, it's gone forever. So um, it's, it's kind of like as a small startup, it, it made sense rather than building it out because you take on all that added risk. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm probably talking like outside my personal expertise. Like I would love talking to Jan, our CTO, about this. So hopefully I'm not saying anything too bad <laughs> well um, that's what i think that's what i think <laughs> all right well let's get back into your expertise um are you sick of talking about cbdc's inflation what's happening with the bitcoin price uh you know not really i you know that's kind of what i like to do is is talk about these things the developments going on um you know i look at the macroeconomic environment and and bitcoin and for me, it's like, this is why Bitcoin exists. This is why uh, Satoshi Nakamoto uh, foresaw some of these issues with the global financial system and that it's unsustainable given the debt levels. You know, Chancellor on the brink of bailouts, second bailout, it was in the Genesis block, right? And so now we're seeing the similar things, except everything's kind of heightened and uh, the consequences are more dire now because the debt's higher. Um, you got currencies of major developed nations uh, acting like emerging market currencies now. And so in a lot of ways, I look around at the world and I'm just like, wow, this is thank, thank Lord, thank the Lord Bitcoin exists first off, because if it didn't, um, I don't really know what I'd be doing. I think I'd be 
probably buying gold or something. Um, but yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's an exciting time. It's also kind of a scary time. Um, you don't want to be right about these things. Uh, but this is kind of a lot of the outcomes that Bitcoiners have been warning about for many, many years now that we're seeing unfold. Yeah, with that, so this is actually a question. So Gore brought, Gore's brought up, I was going to ask you myself. Um, central bank digital currencies. Now, we go back to 2016 in India when um, they announced that they were taking the two largest denominated notes out of circulation. You had two weeks to turn them in. At that point, they were illegal tender. Um, it, at that stage, we actually saw Bitcoin go for a 20% premium on exchanges there simply because they were moving cash. We're starting to see the same thing in I think every country at this stage has expressed an interest in setting up a central bank digital currency. Um, is there not that, hang on guys, this is something serious. Uh, we're seeing what's happening with CBDCs in China. Um, is, why is there not that mass move that we saw in India go into Bitcoin? Is, is that not happening? Do people just not really appreciate what a central bank digital currency is? Like to me, I'm kind of a bit flabbergasted that those dots aren't being connected. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think the education's there around what central bank digital currencies are. I don't think a lot of people even have heard that term or know what CBDC stands for. Um, I also think it's just early. I think a lot of these central banks, like 95% of GDP, 109 central banks are piloting or experimenting or researching central bank digital currencies. Um, only China is like, even close to being ready to implement one, uh, in reality, you know, full blown into their entire economy. They're, they're doing pilots of different cities. Um, but it's far off. I, I just, I don't think people have under, understand, uh, the risk of CBDCs. I think it's still just very early in the research. And so you haven't even seen it talked about that much in, in political circles, even. Um, there's been a couple hearings uh even this year and last year in the united states uh but it's just starting to get become a topic um that's discussed openly like the federal reserve uh just just this year released their first white paper on it official white paper on it so um i think it's just early um i think that is the path that's like the antithesis of, of bitcoin as a decentralized money this a cbdc would actually just centralize the banking industry even more um, to basically one central bank or one global ledger. Um, and so it's kind of the opposite of what you want um, compared to Bitcoin. And so those are like the two futures. And I think eventually people will understand Bitcoin's value proposition uh, because they'll, they'll understand why CBDCs aren't good for lots of different reasons that, that we can get into. But there's a massive lack of understanding too. I, I talked to a couple of friends uh, recently and, and, and they're pretty smart, you know, um, and they think, well, you know, no big deal. Everything's digital nowadays. And, you know, of course I've gone through the whole thing about, well, actually it's completely different because I can see every transaction, blah, blah. But even people in economics sort of don't understand the implications of having a central bank, essentially a database. It's not a blockchain. Um Every single transaction, you know, program on money, being able to control it, being able to censor it, freeze your account, donate to the wrong political party or whatever. And yeah, so even amongst those people, there's still a massive lack of understanding about how that could affect because it's a wet dream for a central bank. I mean, they must hate 
commercial banks, you know, always having to go to the commercial bank. What's this person spending their money on? There's this massive friction between them and uh, the actual consumer. Yeah. And, and, you know, from their perspective, I've, I've always thought it's easy to paint these guys as like have an evil agenda, right? They, they want to create a surveillance state. And, you know, maybe there are some bad actors like that. But I think for the most part, these are good people that are uh, just don't see the flaws in their their plans. But they look at the CBDC and they're like, hey, we're going to improve the efficiency and reduce the cost of the payment system. We're going to encourage financial inclusion by getting more people um, you know, especially the poor, uh, access to dollars. We're going to, uh, facilitate cross-border transactions. We're going to be able to do more efficient monetary policy, targeted monetary policy. It's going to be great. Um, but they don't think about what, what's the consequences of their actions and the risks, uh, that are involved to, um, individual privacy, uh, like you kind of mentioned and how this tool can be used um, against its populace by an authoritarian government or even a benevolent government, if that if that exists, um, that could use it to put, implement social agenda instead of uh, monetary policy. So you could basically target people. Um, and it's not really not hard to see how that could play out. Uh, we just saw like the Canadian trucker protest that happened and that woke people up to these risks. They're like, wow, this could actually happen. Well, with the central bank digital currency, there would be a lack of exits um, if everybody had it, right? So a lot of them say that they're going to complement cash, but with a CBDC, so cash will still exist and we'll be able to use the CBDC. Um, but in reality, if you read all their papers and stuff, uh, they're building out a CBDC because they think cash is no longer going to be exist in 10 to 20 years. Um, and so CBDC will be the only thing that you can get. And so you, if you get cut off from that financial system, well, you'll learn pretty quickly that your life uh, gets very challenging when you can't access any of, you can't pay for anything. You, you know, that's the power that they would be able to have. Um, and if you do one thing that's against the uh, narrative or kind of like a dissident uh, acting against the the government's agenda, they could cut you off with a click of a button for the CBDC. So um, it's dangerous. And I think we should highlight those risks uh, so that people can better understand it. Because um, I think it would be a future that we don't want for our, our kids and uh, I have nieces and nephews. I don't want that future for them. Um, and luckily, Bitcoin exists because they might get rid of cash. Uh, but now there's this alternative digital sound money that they can't stop. And um, that's the two futures that I see. It's a CBDC future and a Bitcoin future. And I think that most people will eventually pick the permissionless open uh, protocol that nobody can control versus the surveillance protocol that can cut you off with a click of a button. That's just my personal uh, opinion. Uh, uh, absolutely. And I'll ask one more question before Faris jumps in. Um, we had, and this was maybe a couple of years ago, we got CBDCs, we got Bitcoin, and they were sort of di diametrically opposed. Uh, centralized, decentralized. But then we sort of went through this Facebook, Amazon. Like, why isn't, do you think they're Amazon coin? Why isn't there a Facebook, whatever? What, what, that was all the rage. What happened to that? It seems to, nothing's happened with that now. Well, actually, so when you read the CBDC rate research, that Facebook coin is what, what lit a fire under them. <laughs> they got freaked out, uh, by the Facebook coin. Um, cause they knew that 
uh, a large platform like Facebook with billions of users could easily create a network a network effect um, that could take market share from them essentially. So this is why uh, you started to see hearings and and the CBDC research from all these central banks exploded after the Facebook. Now I think. I think it has to come to there's regulatory concerns around a permission blockchain. I think Facebook got a lot of pushback from regulators about that. And so that's part of the reason why you haven't seen these coins. Um, I don't think they want to piss off the regulators, especially because they're going through their own uh, like antitrust hearings around that same time too. So you've seen it kind of quiet down in terms of the permission stable coins uh, coming out of these tech companies. Um, but a lot of these CBDCs as well, they're worried about the rise of, of fintech. It's not just crypto. It's not just stablecoins, not just Bitcoin. They're worried about how fintech, uh, you know, citizens of these jurisdictions are, are starting to use it more as money than banknotes that are issued by the central bank. Uh, and they're worried about, they want to get in on the action. They don't want to be left behind from fintechs. They, that's why these CBDCs are getting pushed so hard, like the digital euro. It's because they, they're afraid of the market share of fintech companies, uh, like a Facebook, uh, being able to take market share and control ultimately from the central banks. So, um, I think, I think you probably will start to see more of that. Um, it's hard to tell, you know, you just haven't seen much of, of announcements from an Amazon or, or a Facebook about their plans of a, of a stable coin. You'll probably see more of it though in the future, I'd imagine. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting space to be a part of because, you know, the Libra project, like you said, I remember just made big headlines and it scare a lot of people. Um, sorry, Sam, I know we're running short on time here. We really appreciate having you on. One last thing I want to ask you, and this is something we try to ask all our guests is, the problem with Bitcoiners is we tend to live in this echo chamber and there's a huge knowledge gap. We're talking about um, you know, little um, lightning network. We're talking about all these new things that keep popping up on Bitcoin. Whereas the average consumer, Bitcoin's still a bit of a misnomer. What are the um, hurdles to Bitcoin adoption? Some of the myth busting you still have to see um, today, 2022. What, what's some of the stuff you still have to come across where, yeah, we're here, but the consumer is way back here? Um, well, the energy, the energy FUD's always kind of top of mind because I think it's the easiest one for critics of Bitcoin to poke at, even though there's a ton of flaws in that thinking. So I think it's a combination of not understanding how the energy markets work and then not understanding how Bitcoin works, um, where that can be a, a holdup for people. So I think that's definitely something that we'll just continually have to kind of educate people about and understand that like energy use in itself isn't a bad thing. Um, and that it's worth every watt to have a, a money that's not controlled, um, that can't be censored and can't be inflated away. And so, uh, and then a lot of it that goes back to understanding the problem that Bitcoin solves. Like a lot of the times people just don't even understand like what inflation is, like the financial literacy around the world. Um, they don't understand what's happening. All they understand is that, wow, my paycheck's not stretching as far as it used to. Whoa, the grocery store that these prices are crazy. Um, they don't understand that that's not like a natural phenomenon. That's a policy decision uh, to inflate. Um, and, and their savings are getting, melting away. And so once they understand that, and they understand that that purchasing power is permanent, loss of purchasing power is permanent uh, with fiat currencies. It'll never come back. And so your savings are being devalued uh, permanently. 
And so once you understand that, and you're like, well, how do I, like, how do I protect myself against that? Okay. Well, there's this thing called Bitcoin. Um, so I think that's a big knowledge gap is just understanding the problem. And then I think as currencies continue to, you know, Bitcoin is a function of the environment that is, it's in and the environment it's in right now is chaotic. And what I see is the traditional financial system is what's chaotic. Bitcoin's policy is actually very simple and it hasn't changed and it won't change for its entire existence. Like we know it, it's programmable. We know exactly how much Bitcoin is going to be tomorrow, next month, in in a hundred years. Um, and so it's actually very stable compared to the traditional financial system. And as we see these big currencies start to lose value rapidly and then continually have to do quantitative easing or print more money, and for lack of a better word, um, that's going to continue and, and that's going to get worse. And I think that more and more people will just understand that because they'll have to look for something to protect themselves. And, um, you know, once uh, currencies devalue, what comes soon afterwards is more capital controls as central banks and governments try to trap their citizens in the devaluing local currency. Because if they are looking for other options and alternatives, it makes their monetary policies less effective. And so what they'll try to do is they'll try to prevent you from getting into dollars. If you're, you're not an American, they'll try to prevent you uh, from getting into Bitcoin. Um, and I think once you see that, more censorship, more currency depreciations, um, more and more people will wake up to Bitcoin's value proposition. Unfortunately, a lot of people will just have to learn through getting burnt rather than somebody like us saying, hey, this is important. You should look into this. Um, and I think that's just like human nature. Um, so hopefully that answered your question. But... <laughs> Oh, no, absolutely. And Sam, for people listening in who want to follow your work, where, where can they find you? Where are you active? Uh, yeah, so I'm, um, I'm at swan.com. Uh, I, do, I write a lot of the blog posts on there. You can find a lot of my work that's uh, written in newsletters that get reposted on that blog. Um, and then I'm always on Twitter, uh, sharing my thoughts, sharing my charts and analysis. So you can check me out at Sam Calla, S-A-M-C-A-L-L-A-H. And um, yeah. That's that's pretty much where you can find me. I'm on Twitter a lot. No, thank you very much for coming on. I know we we really appreciated it. And um, yeah, it, we'll catch up again next year, if, if you don't mind, because um, between now and then, who knows what's going to happen with Bitcoin. Yeah, you guys, thanks so much for having me on. Like I, I've listened to a few of your shows in the past and uh, I think oh, really? it's super important to have a Bitcoin basics podcast uh, for beginners. Um, that's, kind of not full of jargon and outside the echo chamber, let's just say. So I really appreciate you guys having me on and, and oh, for what you guys you, do with this podcast. No, thank you. Appreciate your time and uh yeah, re- really appreciate it. And um that's one plus one listener for us. We're uh <laughs> we're getting up there. Go thank you, Sam. It's been a pleasure. Thanks guys. Thanks Sam. Cheers. Thanks for watching or listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, and share so we can spread this educational content to others like yourself. Visit bitcoinbasics.help. Disclaimer. Any content provided by CoinCompass is for educational and informational purposes only and is not investment, legal, tax, or any other professional advice. A qualified professional should be consulted before making any financial decisions. CoinCompass will at times recommend certain products, services, and technologies, but these are opinions based upon our own or podcast guests' experience and not endorsements.
We take no liability for out-of-date or inaccurate information, software bugs, manufacturing errors, technology misuse, or issues involving third parties. Visit coincompass.com for more information and please contact us.